First Samuel, the birth of Samuel. There was a certain man of Rothmanah Zophath of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tua, the son of Zuth, an Ephraite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her son, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. But I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Then the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord 
and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. May the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up along with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephath of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Thank you, Deb. Pray with me. Lord, we do thank you for this word. Thank you for keeping it for us, revealing it to us, and allowing us, Lord, to um, learn from you, learn about you. Lord, this word is timeless. It seems old. It seems weird to us in several ways. But God, through your Holy Spirit, make it alive relevant and fruit-bearing in our, in our lives, God, in our church. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So I begin with the kids from Isaiah chapter 40. And I did that so that we would have this picture, this big picture, if you will, of, of who our God is. That he is mighty. His arm rules for him. That's always a picture of God's strength in the scriptures. That he is the one who has measured out the mountains, the heavens. He scooped out the valleys, raised up the hills. He holds the waters in his hand. I mean, the immensity of God is really something we can only see with eyes of faith. But as we see him with eyes of faith, we also see his compassion and his care for us as individuals. And I wanted the kids to understand that, but I wanted the big kids to understand that, too. Because as we see that, and as we come to understand that, then we can understand the context for what's going on in the book of Samuel. Because God is the same God that we read in the book of Ephesians that is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He has a sovereign purpose and plan for the universe to unite all things in Christ. So this big micro, this macro picture, if you will, okay, this macro picture of what God is doing also comes down to the micro level when we see the individuals, the men and the women, the families that he chooses to use as a part of that big plan. And that's what we see unfolding before us here in the book of Samuel. Now there's, there's primary characters here. I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Most people see Samuel, Saul, and David as the primary figure in the book of Samuel. And again, I'm referring to Samuel as 1st and 2nd Samuel. But I also think that we'll see Hannah, at least in these first two chapters, lay a foundation for us, indeed a road map for us, to work through the rest of Samuel together. We'll see that unfold according to what's going on in her life, and especially the way that she prays or sings in chapter 2. So if we think about Saul, Samuel, David, these are the road markers, okay? These are kind of the waypoints on this journey. 
But this journey is the big plan of God, his purpose to unite all things in Christ. And ultimately, the main figure in Samuel is not Saul, it's not Samuel, and it is not even David, although it is called the book of David. It is God. It is God who is at the center stage for this. And so we want to see him even as we see these characters that he uses. So there's four scenes. It's a long. Now, just get used to this reading of a, of a fairly lengthy narrative passage because that's how we're going to have to work through the, the, the whole book, okay, First and Second Samuel. Pretty much a chapter at a time because we have to see that whole narrative unfolding even as we take it apart and look at it like a drama. So there's four scenes in this one. There's this picture of a, of a home, a, a house, a family, and it is a troubled house in some ways. It's a house of faith. There's a faithful man here, but it's a troubled house. Then we'll move from the house of Elkanah to Shiloh. This is the place of worship for the people of God at this point in time in their history. And so we move from there to this place of worship. But really the picture there is not so much on that place. It's on the heart of Hannah because we're going to see Hannah's heart. We're going to see that heart that's broken, and we're going to see it changed. And then there's a short scene where they leave Shiloh and go back home. And then the chapter closes with them coming back again to Shiloh. So we're at home in church, back at home, and then back at the place of worship again. We begin with this troubled house. There's three characters in this troubled house. There's a faithful husband. There is a just a taunting rival as one of his wives. And then there is a suffering wife also. And so as we see this, and we see this unfolding before us in a cultural sense, understand that Old Testament narratives are not necessarily prescriptive. They are descriptive. And what I mean by that is that they are describing for us what's going on in the life of individuals and of families and of the people of God. In that particular time, at that particular place, it's a narrative, it's describing. It is not necessarily prescribing for us a way of life, principles like we find in the New Testament. Okay? Because what we find here is Elkanah and his two wives. And as we see this before us in the text here, the writer is not really passing judgment one way or another on the fact that Elkanah, that, excuse me, that, that Elkanah has two wives. That's just the fact. And it's important for us to recognize that because we'll run into that more often as not in a lot of these Old Testament passages. Some of the heroes of our faith, like Abraham and like David, had multiple wives. Yet, and this is important to recognize, that polygamous household is never once held up as an example of the kind of household that God wants for his people. Not once. Is it held up as a happy home? Every time it's tumultuous. It's divided. It is not a good picture. Jim Hamilton says the biblical authors everywhere assume that marriage is a comprehensive interpersonal union between one man and one woman that is exclusive, monogamous, and permanent, and if God wills, produces children. He goes on and says the biblical authors are aware of polygamy. And they do not hide the fact of it. But the Bible shows that problems always accompany polygamy. Those marriages are never depicted as happy. And that's the case. 
So we'll just, we'll just cruise through that, if you will. He had two wives. One of those wives is named Panina. And, and Panina, as, as we look at the text here, it says that Hannah would, that, that Elkanah would take his family and he would go to worship. He was faithful in that. And that's something we see depicted about this man. He is depicted as a godly man concerned for the spiritual well-being of his family. And concerned, it appears in the, in the text, it tells us, that he's concerned for the emotional well-being of his wife Hannah. doesn't really say much about Penina and her relationship to her husband. But he's presented as a godly man who cares about the spiritual well-being of his family and the emotional well-being of Hannah, his wife. Penina, on the other hand, what I see in her as I've studied this is she's consistent. She's consistent. She's consistently pregnant. And she's consistently a pain to Hannah. And the text is clear in this. She is someone who just is relentless in her torment. Year after year describes their pilgrimage to worship. And year after year, a consistency to it, her rival would provoke her grievously, it says in verse 6, and irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It goes on later on to say that she just continues to pour out all kinds of contempt upon her and just constantly, constantly berating her. So here in this home with one man and two wives, there's rivalry, there's dissension, there's brokenness. I mean, it's clear in this text what this is doing to Hannah. And what's interesting is look at verses 5 and 6. Elkanah, when he would sacrifice, he would give a portion, and we're not going to get into the Levitical law, but a portion of it went to the priest, and a portion of it went back to the family. And Elkanah saw that his wife, Penina, and her children, his children through her, were taken care of. And it says in verse 5 that he gave Hannah a double portion. Now, commentators are split right down the middle on whether or not this means she actually got twice as much, or whether or not it was just the attention that he was giving her. And... The point is, he's paying attention to her because he sees a a need there, an emotional need that's going on. As Hannah's weeping and she's being provoked. But what I want you to notice is it says there that the Lord had closed her womb in verse 5. And because of that, Elkanah is giving her this attention. He's giving her this care. He's trying to comfort her. Verse 6 says that Penina saw that the Lord had closed her womb. It's the exact same wording in two chapters and two completely opposite responses. Completely opposite. And here's what I see in that. Is that those who have received, those who recognize and receive God's grace and kindness are then ready to extend that same grace and kindness to others. Regardless of the circumstances, even more so in the bad circumstances. God is sovereign over this. It is his fault that Hannah is not getting pregnant. Don't miss that. It is his work, his doing. As is the case with everything that our sovereign God determines to do. And yet, our response to that is going to be one of grace and kindness because he's extended that to us as we see others suffer. Or condemnation, just giving them a heart. You made that bed, you sleep in it. That kind of attitude. So that's what we see from this taunting rival. But then we see this suffering wife. And starting there in verse 8, the issue is clear. Hannah is barren. 
She has not been able to have any children. And her childlessness, the fact that she is barren, has created a personal crisis for her. Now, contextually, we must understand the the situation that goes on here. Understand what's going on in the life of an agrarian society like Israel. Understand why it's so important. Well, for one thing, under the Old Covenant, God had promised fruitfulness to his people. If you have children, it's a sign of blessing. If you don't have children, it's a sign of a curse from God. And I'm sure that was part of what Penina was doing with Hannah. You know, I can just imagine how this might have gone on. Oh, go show, go show Auntie Hannah the, the Mother's Day card you made me. Huh? You know, just parading her children in front of her. I don't know how that works. Um, but clearly, Hannah is, is just, just having a really hard time with what's going on. And under this old covenant, it's rightfully so. Women, were not considered to be blessed of God without children. Why were children so important there? I mean, think about it. Back in Watauga County, back in the day, when you were a farmer, and whoever you had working on your farm was your children. And if you didn't have workers, it was because you didn't have children. And it's the same that's true. It's, it's the same here. Not only were children a sign of blessing from God, children were essential for the well-being of the family. The more children you have, the more people you have working in your family business. The more prosperous you are. The more children you have as a woman, especially in sons, then you have somebody to take care of you in your old age. There's no government. There's no welfare. There's none of those things. Your children take care of you. Remember what the situation was with Ruth. And so the more children you have, the more stability you have in your old age. From a national standpoint, the more sons you have, the stronger your army and the more stable your government. And so the fact that she was childless, and I'm sure she's not the only one, but her situation is highlighted for us. And so in verse 8, Elkanah comes to his wife and tries to comfort her. Hannah, why do you weep? Why are you not eating? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? No, you're not. You're not more to her than ten sons. But notice something. Here's this troubled house, and we just kind of transition into scene two with verse nine. But I want you to notice in this change that's going on in Hannah's heart, her reserve. Look at her reserve. Loudly in Hannah's ears up until this point in time, there have been two voices. One is a taunting voice that's relentless. It's Panina. How can you call yourself blessed? That's what her name means. You're not blessed. You don't even have kids. She hears this constantly. On the other hand, she hears a husband who is trying his best to console and comfort her. Those are the two voices. What does Hannah say to either one of them? Nothing. Nothing. There's a reserve there that I think is extraordinary because she doesn't lash out back at Panina and she doesn't, you know, she doesn't respond to Elkanah that we can see in the text. There's a reserve there. When she does speak, which she is about to, it's to God. It's to him. There's reserve. There's also Hannah's resolve. Verse 9 would be a verse that we could easily just skip over. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. The Hebrew language will not allow us just to skip over that. 
because it's significant. It's, it's a turning point. It's like Hannah is saying in her heart, and it's seen in her actions, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin to work. I'm going to begin to move. I'm going to begin to turn to the one who can do something here. And the fact that she stands up, is significant because the idea behind that verb in the Hebrew is it's a decisive act. It's not just standing up to stretch after a meal. It's an action that is looking to act on behalf of what's going on. So Hannah stands as a, as a, as a statement, I think, and as an action of resolve. She is, there's a purposeful change in what's going on here. There's a resolve there. And then there is a plea. She's deeply distressed. She's praying. She's crying. And then she makes this vow. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, I will give to your servant a son. Excuse me, but will give your servant a son. Then I'll give him to the Lord. All the days of his life, no razor shall touch his head. Verse 12 says she continued praying before the Lord. And Eli, the priest, observes her praying. And notice how she's praying. Notice the depth of this. See this? She's speaking in her heart, and her lips are moving, but her voice is not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. So, as this unfolds here before us, Hannah's plea. There's this bitter, relentless taunting that comes from her rival, Panina. It never stops, I don't think. And because of that, there's this storm. There's an inner storm. That's what those words kind of describe for us. Deeply distressed. There is an agony deep in her soul. I mean, this is, this is as deep and personal as it can get for her. And she's crying out to the Lord. Even in this anguish that we see in her heart, it comes out in the form of a cry. And what comes out then is not words that are heard with the ear, but we see it moving. I couldn't help but think back over the years, and I could start naming people for you who, saints who have come through this church, and, I'll, and I just remember, I, I remember there was, a, there was a gentleman in this church years ago and his wife, Miss Orr McDowell, just died uh, earlier this year, I think, yeah. Um, her husband, G.W., well, G.W.'s mother was alive when I first came here, and I would go visit Miss McDowell. You know how your senses pick up on things like smell and sight? I remember even now the smell of her hands and her lotion on her hands. Because I would go visit her, Miss Ola, and I'd go visit Miss Ola, and I never left there that she didn't pray for me the most amazing prayer that even to this day, nobody's ever prayed for me like she did. And I would remember her holding my hand in her soft lotion-covered hands and smelling it. And as I was praying, I could... I could just hear her mumbling a little and, and see her lips moving. She was praying in her heart, but just her lips were moving. There weren't always words, but she was always praying. Well, that's kind of what's going on here with Hannah. Her heart is, is just breaking, and she's pouring her soul out to the Lord. And her lips are moving, and the words are coming from her heart. And there's just an intensity to this. There's just such a depth to it. And her own words describe the reality of her heart. And Eli doesn't see it. He doesn't understand it. And there's some little subtle contrast that come to play throughout the book of Samuel that are important for us to see. 
Look back at the first of the chapter as Deb read it. Elkanah is described here with his family. And it says in verse 3 that he used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests. Why would Hophni and Phinehas be named there? Well, I think there's a contrast. I think there's a contrast between faithful Elkanah, who's going up to worship, and what we will see about these two boys shortly is they are worthless. Elkanah knows the Lord and wants to worship him. The text will tell us in a few chapters that Hophni and Phinehas, although they were priests, did not know the Lord. So there's subtle little contrast there, names that pop up. Why is that name there? Well, it tells us later on that Hannah rose and Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost. I'm not going to put too much into that, but we're going to see in a minute that as Hannah rises and takes this determinative action, she's, she's purposeful in what she's doing, and Eli's just sitting there at the seat. We're going to see that Eli sits a lot. He sits when he should be standing, taking care of his sons and correcting them. And he doesn't even recognize prayer. In a couple of chapters, when the Lord calls out to young Samuel, Eli's not going to recognize God's voice. He doesn't know God's voice, and he doesn't recognize prayer when he sees it. That's a picture of the state of Israel at the time, by the way. Hannah's not the only one that's barren. Israel is barren. Hannah's not the only one that needs things reversed in her life. The people of God need things reversed. Some of us need things reversed. And God's still in the business of doing that. So there's these subtle contrasts. But look at her plea. Look at what she says. Eli comes up to her and says, stop drinking. Why are you coming to church drinking? How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away. And Hannah says, no, I'm not. I'm a troubled woman, a woman troubled in spirit. I've not touched anything, she says. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as worthless. All along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. So she's pouring out her heart and she's pleading with the Lord. And notice what she does earlier in the text when she makes this vow. She understands the situation. She understands God has done this. Now, I'm sure that in our medical day today, she could go and visit a doctor and the doctor could tell her why it is she's not having children. But ultimately, my mindset, my parent, my perspective on the world, my, my worldview, as I think most biblical worldviews would be, is that God is sovereign over that, even though the doctor is the one who's telling you what's going on or not going on. But here, clearly, God is the one that's responsible for her barrenness. And she recognizes that. She recognizes that. He, she knows God has closed her womb, and she acknowledges that. Now, I know, and we all recognize, sometimes the problems we have in our lives and the situations we have come about because of things we've done or things that people have done to us, right? But is God just on the side? No responsibility? No role? Just kind of waiting in the wings for us to cry out to Him so He can come and do what, what He might want to do? Now, that's not the picture we have in Scripture of our God. He is sovereign over the problems we face. 
And we cannot escape that as we look at what's going on in Hannah's life. And the term that I think is important for us to recognize is the term that she uses as she prays. O Lord of hosts. And that's the first time in the Bible that we see that term. Okay? And it will be seen repeatedly throughout the rest of Scripture. The Lord of hosts. And we need to recognize that this term, the Lord of hosts, he is, he is majestic in his size. He is the God of heaven's armies. Okay? What is it that the angels say in Isaiah chapter 6? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He's God over the angels. And so this sovereign God, this majestic, mighty God, is the one that Hannah is pleading to over her barrenness, over the situation in her life. And she, and we will see this clearly come unfolding in chapter 2 when she gives her, her prayer, her prayer of praise. It's exactly what Isaiah says. The Lord of hosts has sworn I have planned. I'm reading from Isaiah 14. I have planned, so shall it be. I have purposed, so shall it stand. Later on it says in verse 27, The Lord of hosts has purposed. Who can annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who can turn it back? Later on in chapter 2, Hannah will say, The Lord kills. He brings down to Sheol. The Lord makes poor. He brings low. It's not just an accident of nature that Hannah is barren. And she knows that God is behind this, but she also knows God is faithful. She says, Lord, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. What's going on here? Is it like, hey, God, did you forget? Let me wake him up and see if he remembers. Let me see if I can shake him. And all of a sudden he'll he'll recognize what's going on down here. Is that what's going on when we see in the word that it says God remembered? And when she says don't forget, is she afraid that God is going to forget? I mean, sometimes in our hearts we, we can think that, right? But as she does this, when she says look on the affliction of your servant, she is echoing language that comes from the older part of the Old Testament. She is echoing the same words that we see in Exodus. We see in Deuteronomy. We see them later on in Jeremiah. We see the same words used as the people of God recognize how it is that God sees them enslaved in Egypt and begins to work to bring them out. It's the same wording. This idea that God remembers. This idea that God sees. This idea that God recognizes. It says of the people of God, surely they have seen the affliction of my, excuse me, he says, I have seen the affliction of my people. That's what he tells Moses. Later on, when they heard that the Lord had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The Lord saw their affliction. Nehemiah is reminding the people as he's encouraging to build the wall that God saw the affliction of our fathers. So God sees and he knows. And she is not here crying out in some unknown way. She, this is a prayer of faith. God, I know you see. And I know you remember. And I know you act. And based on the fact that I know you know. And I know you see. And I know you act. I'm coming to you, Lord. And pouring out my heart to you based on that. It's a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of faith. It is not just crying out to some unknown entity someplace and hoping against hope. She's praying out a prayer of faith. 
And she's praying out also this amazing promise of faith that she makes. God has been faithful, and here's she making a promise. Now, Hannah, is she making a deal? Is that what this is? God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. Okay? Let's, let's put our cards out on the table here, Lord. Let's see who's got more skin in this game. Now, that's not what she's doing. Hannah is not trying to make a deal with the Lord. Hannah is committing to give back to the Lord. There's a key phrase that's through this. All it's, 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 I think it's over four times just in a part of these verses where we see this idea of giving, asking, asking, giving, this interchange. And that's going on back and forth in this passage of Scripture. Hannah is committing to give her son to the Lord. To do that in, in, as a Nazarite. Okay, a Nazarite. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Samson, his parents took a, a vow for him to be a Nazarite, although he didn't live up to it. A Nazarite is someone who is not a priest because they're not born into the family of Levi, but yet they volunteer. They want to be a priest. And most of the time it's temporary. It's not always permanent. But here she is vowing that she will give this child to be a Nazarite, to be a priest before God for the rest of his life. And as she is doing that, here's what she is doing. She is giving up the very things that would be hers because she now would have a son. A son gives her security because he's going to take care of her. Not if he's not in her household and given to the Lord and serving in a temple, you know, serving in the tabernacle someplace. A son is going to guarantee inheritance, not if he's a priest. The priest didn't own land. They had no inheritance. The things that would be hers because she would have a son, she is giving up as she offers this child back to the Lord. She's giving up all claims to what benefits she would have as a son and giving him to the Lord. This child will be for God, not for Hannah. And yet there's a change in her heart. Notice. She's praying. Eli says, go in peace. The God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. He's speaking just a word of blessing to her as she leaves. Let your servant find favor in her eyes. And it says there in verse 19 that the woman went away and ate and her face was no longer sad. She's not making a deal with God. If she were making a deal, this is the sequence. Hannah prayed. Hannah got pregnant. And Hannah was happy. That's not what the text says. Hannah prayed. Hannah's heart was changed. Her face is lifted up. There's joy. There's peace there. Hannah prayed. Hannah got peace. And then Hannah went home and got pregnant. There's a change in her heart long before there's any pregnancy. Long before there's any baby. There's a changed heart here. And this heart is changed because she is trusting in, looking back on the faithfulness of God, and saying, even in my suffering, my heart will praise Him, as we've just sung. Even in my brokenness, I'm trusting God. And Hannah has found here... And I'll point this out when we get to our applications in just a second. Hannah has found here that her identity is not in her being a mama. Her identity is not 
in her being in a happy marriage, although she is. Her identity is in her God. And she will not give in to the cultural pressures that tell her her identity needs to be in something else. And when she is settled on her identity as a child of God, she's at peace. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Scene three, I'm not going to take a lot of time in verse 19. They rose early in the morning, wrapped up the worship. I'm not sure what went on that next morning as they worshiped and went back. Elkanah is still leading his family spiritually here. They go back. They have intimacy. They have sex. She gets pregnant. In due time, she gives birth to a son, and they name the son Samuel. And she says, I have asked for him from the Lord. And the Hebrew language here is really cool. He's named, and, and again, the word ask is throughout this passage of Scripture. It's four times just in these few verses here. And, and the name Samuel, and I'm reading this as I've put it in my notes, Shaul, Miel, that sounds like the word ask in Hebrew. So his name doesn't actually mean ask, but it sounds like ask, okay? In effect, what she's saying, may God give you the Samuel you have Samueled, is, is what Eli would have said to her. So his name sounds like Shaul or thank or asking in Hebrew. By the way, Saul's name does too, so we'll get to that later. Again, just a little interplay here. So she, she has this baby. Next scene, the final scene. Next year, evidently, or it could be up until four years later. It says after Hannah had weaned the child. And that weaning process in the culture I've read could have taken up to four years, maybe. And, and I'm, I'm still just, most of us who have children would go, this is incredible. This, is inc- this woman has this baby. She nurses him. She cares for him. The intimacy and the closeness there in that relationship, what's about to unfold is just extraordinary. What a, what a, what a picture of faith. What, what is it that she's doing here? So in scene four, starting in verse 21, they return faithfully to worship again. Hannah returns with this boy who by now could be as old as four, maybe even five years old. And they come ready, they come in a, in a way to worship and give thanks. It says that she came with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Some versions of this say she came with three bulls because there was a quantity, there's a ratio of how much flour you should bring with one bull, how much flour you should bring with three bulls. Some commentators said, no, she had three bulls because she had enough flour for three. I don't know. It just says she brought this bull, she brought this flower, she brought this skin of wine. And those are all different kinds of offering, a thank offering, a praise offering. The point is she's coming in faith to worship. And she reminds Eli who she is and why she's come. I prayed for this child. I made a petition to the Lord for this child. I have lent him to the Lord and he is lent to the Lord for as long as he lives. And there again, those same words are ask. They're translated different, but ask, 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 ask is, is in, that ling, in that language there. And they worship the Lord there. That's the last verse in this chapter. They worship the Lord, or he worshiped the Lord. Again, commentators say, well, it was Elkanah who's doing the worshiping. No, it was the whole family. Some say Eli. Some say it was Samuel. I'm not sure about that. I'm just having a hard time figuring out how a four-year-old does that. But they worshiped, okay? 
We will see how this all wraps up in her prayer in chapter 2. Let me give you four application points. They're in your bulletin, but I want you to just pay attention to them. I've been struck by that this, by this first one this week. Just be aware of Hannah's plight. What was her plight? It was that culture wanted to impose her identity based on their standards. Panina said, you don't measure up because you don't have a baby. Culture would say, you don't measure up because you don't have this sign of God's blessing. And yet what we see here is this woman who all of a sudden is just freed from the taunts and all that the world would say to her because she wasn't conforming to what they said she ought to be conforming to. And the culture will not respond favorably to those who don't line up. Just get used to it if you're not already. Don't be surprised by this. Okay? Now, we understand in our culture, we understand in our day, our medical advances and all those things can impact a lot of things in all of our lives, including barrenness. But ultimately, God is either sovereign over it or he's not. And we have to be careful that we, don't allow, that we don't allow the world, even the Christian culture around us, to put an identity on us that the Bible wouldn't support. So cultures imposed identities are always empty and they are never going to fulfill. Just be aware of that. Secondly... Hannah's example in prayer is one for us to follow. It's humble, it's desperate, it's expectant. She's basing this prayer on what God has done in the past and on the character of God, not just on her circumstances. She's looking to and resting in God's faithfulness. And we can do the same. We're called to do the same. I wonder what we're desperate for. This has been on my mind this week. What are we desperate for? What is it that our heart would cry out to the Lord with such angst and such expectancy and such fervency that maybe our, our lips move, but it's just our heart crying out? A prayer that's too deep and too powerful even for our own words. What is it? There's revival breaking out up at Asbury College. Are we praying for that to happen other places? There's hundreds of thousands of lives totally dismantled this week in Turkey and Syria. We have missionaries there who are just pouring their lives out trying to minister and serve there. Are we concerned enough about that to just pray in a desperate way for that? What about that lost husband? That wayward child? Hannah's example for us here is one that's worth following. We also need to follow Hannah's example in how she found peace. And, and some commentators, and I think rightly so, would tell us that Hannah had a had a, a revival experience here, that there was repentance on her part. The angst and the brokenness and all that she felt because of the turmoil going on because she was not measuring up to the world standard around her, even to what Panina thought she ought to be doing, she had to repent from that. She had to repent of that. And commentators tell us that there is this picture of repentance in her. And as we get to the next chapter, I think we're going to see the significance of that, that her identity, her security, her significance are only based in the Lord now. And Samuel's message through Hannah, through these circumstances to you and me, is that Christ is our only hope. He's our only hope. 
And then finally, just see who this main character is. The main character is not Hannah. It's not Elkanah. We're certainly going to see it's not Eli or any of these other priests. Our God is faithful. He cares for his own. He is all-sufficient. He is all-powerful. And he's the only one who can give you the hope and peace that you need. This passage points us to Jesus. And as I told the kids a minute ago, he upholds this world by his powerful word, the writer of Hebrews says. And after he had made propitiation, atonement for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The first way that Christ does that for you and me is shedding his blood for us and giving us peace first with God and then with one another. Have you trusted in Christ? Are you looking to the world to give you your identity and your sense of worth? Are you looking to your wife or your husband or your children to give you that sense of identity and of worth? Turn from that. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word today. It is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit will be the one to take this word and apply it into each of our hearts. Overlook the mistakes that have been in the preaching or where it's just not been what it should have been. Lord, work in the listening. Parts maybe that we didn't hear the way we needed to, bring them back to our minds. And Father, in each of our hearts, I pray you'd help us to see our identity is in Jesus. Our worth is in him. And you alone, Lord, are worthy of glory and honor and praise. And just bring that about in our lives. Bear that fruit, God, I pray. And we lift this up to you in Christ's name. Amen.